So let's do this. Let's pray and then we'll dive into Luke chapter 22 today as you get your Bibles out and get ready to go. Lord, this morning we ask for your spirit to come and open our minds and hearts to you in ways that maybe we aren't already. Use this passage, this word, this message to change us, inform us, and shape us. Um, Help us to see more clearly what it is to follow you and then push us in that direction, God. Help us to trust you and love you as a church more because of today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been a part of a party where a big announcement was made, where someone stood up and all of a sudden just dropped this bomb right in the middle? (laughs) Attention, everyone. I got an announcement. We're engaged. Not not me. I've been married for a long time, but figuratively, right? Um, Hey, I wanted all of you to be the first to know we're pregnant. I got the official word today. The job is mine. The scholarship came through. The adoption is final. Or maybe the announcement went like this. Hey, I'm sorry to break up the party, but I had to let everyone know that mom's cancer is back. We had the ultrasound today, and there's no heartbeat. The drug report was positive again, and your father lost his job. We're getting divorced. You may not have known this, but I've been wrestling with my sexuality for a long time. And you see, friends, as we dive back into our story today, we need to remember that Jesus has just dropped a bomb. He has stood up in the middle of the most significant and celebrated dinner party of the year and just informed his friends, his disciples, his closest followers that one of them will betray him unto death. And you have to stop for just a second to feel the eerie silence and disbelief as they look at Jesus and then glance around the room. To see the shock and confusion on their faces just before they erupt into questions and accusations and debate. What? No way. How could this be? How could this ever happen? You see, the way Luke tells it, it seems so abrupt. But when you stop and think about it, it's not hard to imagine how it happened. The hand of him who is going to betray me, Jesus said, is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go, as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Does that seem like a weird shift to anyone else? Or is it just me? How do you go from who will betray Jesus to... Who's the greatest? Well, actually, it makes perfect sense. Just imagine the conversation. Not not one of us, Jesus. Not one of us. Certainly not me. I couldn't do it. Is it I, Lord? Please, say it's not me. It couldn't be us. We left our village, our father, the family business to follow you. I, I left a lucrative tax business to follow you. 
I was there with him at his baptism. I was there with him before you. We were the ones who went up on the mountaintop to be with him, remember? Well, I'm the one who passed out food with him that day on the shore. Big deal. I was the guy who jumped out of the boat in the middle of that storm. Yeah, and then you sank. I prayed with him for that little girl. Well, I was right there when he touched those lepers. I was the one who first declared, he's the Christ, the son of the living God. Do you see how easy it can happen? And, and, and isn't it amazing? Doesn't it reveal something about the human heart? How, how quickly the sin of others can turn us into feeling self-righteous, better than can get us so easily talking about our own greatness. And just as the debate over greatness begins to heat up, Jesus decides in a way that only Jesus can do to use this moment to remind and teach his followers about true greatness. True greatness is what we're talking about today. It's what Jesus addresses. Luke chapter 22, verse 25. Then Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Friends, this morning we're going to talk about kingdom greatness. Greatness according to Jesus. Greatness from the eyes of God. And we're going to talk about what defines kingdom greatness. We're going to talk about where kingdom greatness is developed. And then finally, we're going to talk about how to not be deterred from kingdom greatness. But perhaps the first thing we should notice about Jesus' response in this section is what he does not say. And I point this out because I think it is sometimes the prevailing thought amongst Christians in churches that Jesus is somehow against greatness. You notice that Jesus never says in the middle of this debate, hold up guys, hold up. I don't want you to be great. Don't try and be great. In fact, if you're going to follow me, make it your goal and priority and life's ambition to just be average, mediocre, plain, to just blend in, to never excel or outdo or shine or stand out in any way. It is not what Jesus says. Actually, he says the exact opposite. He longs for us to be great. But he says, let me tell you what it looks like to be great. Let me look, let me tell you how to use your greatness. Let me define what greatness looks like in the eyes of God. And then I want you to pursue that with everything you have. Jesus starts off talking about kings and the rulers of the Gentiles. He says, these guys, they they lord it over. They call themselves benefactors. And you'll notice that the word benefactors in the text is capitalized. It's because it was an actual title. It was an actual title that the rulers of Rome used. Ptolemy and Nero and Caesar Augustus called themselves benefactors. And what they said 
Uh, what they were saying is, we are benefactors to the people. We are the source, this is what a benefactor is, we are the source of all that's good in their lives. It is a benefit for them to have us. And so we'll be called benefactors. Isn't it a privilege for them just to be able to be in our presence? Isn't it a sheer joy for them to have the honor of serving us? We are benefactors. They are blessed by us. You see, a benefactor is one who lords who they are over others. Who says, I am really important. This is the world system, Jesus says. And the system goes like this. In the world, this is how the world works. This is how the Gentiles work. This is how you may be tempted to work. Use your position, use your power, your talents and gifts and abilities to lift yourself up over others. These Gentile kings, Jesus says, they use their greatness for self. To highlight self, to point out to others how important they are. But say this with me, church. You are not to be like that. You are not to be like that. Who is you? You is us. You is followers of Jesus. You are the ones who bear his name. You is the church. You, church, are not to be like that. In fact, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. You see, in that culture, age and honor went together. And the older I get, the more I like this system. Um, If you were the youngest... You were the least honored. You were considered to be the least important. You were the least recognized. And Jesus says, amongst my followers, everyone should use their position and gifts and talents not to make themselves feel more important, but to help others feel more important. Not greatness for the advancement of self, but greatness in order to serve others. You see, it's okay to be great, but where is your greatness aimed Who is your greatness for? Is it for you or is it for the people around you? Is it for other people in this world? And and Jesus says, there's an ultimate example of this. And it's me. He says, I am among you as one who serves. He says, this whole thing seems counterintuitive. And you may not even be able to picture it. Oh, but wait, just picture me. You want the ultimate example of what kingdom greatness looks like, of what it looks like to be great and use your greatness to serve others. Just look at Jesus. You see, the irony of this scene is so great. It's such a fun... I mean, I love how Luke writes it. You have to picture it. You have to be there. The group of disciples sitting around debating which one of them is the greatest while the greatest human being to ever walk the planet stands there in their midst and listens to them. This would be sort of like sitting in a room with your buddies and debating who's better at basketball while Michael Jordan looked on and took notes. It would seem sort of silly, wouldn't it? Like, it wouldn't, like, who cares? You're in the presence of greatness, and they are in the presence of ultimate greatness. I am among you as one who serves. I mean, if you have to think about this for a minute, think about all the greatness they've experienced from Jesus. All that they've seen. Everything he's done. And did he ever use it to lift up himself? Did he ever just drop a really sick miracle and and then go, boom, how you like me now? (laughs) 
Did he say, take up your mat and walk? Who's your daddy? (laughs) Storm be still. Who's the man? Lazarus, come forth. Dab, mic drop. Boom. (laughs) Does Jesus ever do this? No, actually, you know what Jesus does? He goes out of his way not to take the credit, not to take the attention. He always puts the focus back on the person. He's always pointing to the Father. He's always telling his disciples, don't spread the news. You see, Jesus is never about the glory for himself. He's always about the building up of the other. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. His entire life, even up until his death, was about helping out you, advancing you, redeeming you, lifting you, showing you how important you are. See, this is the difference between religion and following Jesus. If you want to get to the heart of it, someone's just doing religion or if they're really trying to follow Christ, they're very, very different. They look the same on the outside at times, but inside they are 100% in the opposite direction. See, religion puts the focus on me. Here's what I do. Here's who I am. So that I can become this, so that I can have that, so that I can be in this place with God. See, religion is all about me, but following Jesus always puts the focus on you. Following Jesus never says, look at me. It always says, look at you. It always says, look at God. Religion says, use your spiritual gifts to feel better than others. Jesus says, use them to encourage others. Religion says, use your morality to feel superior to others. Jesus says, use it to humbly be an example to others. Religion says, use your gifts, your success, other people's failure to help you feel more important. But Jesus says, because of my love, be so secure in your importance that you can use your power and influence and position and gifts to highlight the importance of others. And that's when Jesus says, you'll be truly great. You'll be great in the eyes of God. That's when Jesus says, you'll be on the path to pursuing kingdom Greatness. That's when you'll be ready, he tells the disciples, to sit at my table, to rule and lead in my kingdom when you really start to understand and pursue greatness from God's perspective. And that's what verses 29 and 30 are about. Jesus raising up and developing leaders who aren't in pursuit of worldly greatness, but greatness from God's eyes. Maybe you're here like me this morning and you're tempted to think, this all sounds pretty lofty, but I'm not sure I really wrestle with this. Uh, maybe, maybe you're here and you don't, even think, you don't even think of yourself as great. Most of us in this room have probably learned enough in church that we'd never admit to ourselves that we think we're great. Um, although I think that would be a bad call too, because you are great and God says you're great and he wants you to be great. But that's, that's another sermon possibly. Um, but maybe you're here and you think, I don't even think of myself as great. I don't think I wrestle with this. I don't really wrestle with this idea of... You know, using my power and position and authority and gifts and abilities to lift myself up. I can't even think of an example of that. In fact, I found myself asking that same question as I read through this passage. And then God God brought to mind a story from my life, not a few years ago, but just a couple weeks ago. Pastor Matt had preached a sermon, a similar message, a little different angle on how the religious leaders enjoyed titles. They loved their titles. They loved their 
their prestige and honor and how they sat in the special seats and they wore these long robes to show everybody just how significant and important they were. And I remember sitting in the front row, listening to the message and thinking to myself, I think I've, I think I've come a long way here, which isn't a bad thing, by the way, to see progress in your life. Um, it doesn't happen all the time for me, but sometimes I think, man, I think I've come a long way here. I think I've grown here. I'm, I'm not nearly as c- concerned with you know, how important I feel. And certainly as a pastor, when I was a younger pastor, it was a big deal. It felt really good when people treated me as a pastor and all that. And it was probably a little bit unhealthy, but I've kind of shed some of that and don't really care that much anymore. And I'm not as driven by that. And I kind of walked out that day feeling like, yeah, you know, my position doesn't really drive me. And then it happened. God has a way. He just does. I was up here on a Monday night about a week later playing basketball and this young guy, mid-twenties, came up to me. A bunch of guys play on the Monday nights uh, from some other churches in town and this one young guy came up to me and said, hey, aren't you, like, aren't, don't you work here at the church? And I assumed that he was asking me because he observed how well-behaved I was on the court. Um, <laughs> how much Jesus was just flowing out of me as I dribbled and shot jump shots. No, I think he just heard that I was possibly on staff and he said, don't you work here at the church? And I said, yeah, I do. And and, and here's when it started. There was this little flicker, this little flicker of a thought that just all of a sudden appeared in the center of my mind and it went something like this. I hope he asks me what I do here. (laughs) And just, there it was, all of a sudden, I hope he asks me what I do here. And then sure enough, he did. And the little spark started to, to burn a little brighter. And he said, well, what do you do? He said, he said, are you like the, are you like the kid's pastor or something? And then here's the moment, friends. Here it is. And I shared this only because this is a very safe room and I know that you won't repeat it outside of these walls. Um, <laughs> your pastor in all his glory, here's what I said. I said, no, I'm not the kid's pastor. I am the lead pastor. <laughs> I'm a very humble lead pastor at that. And I have to tell you, as soon as I said it, it was like the spirit was all over it. I was like, ooh, that's one of those robes Matt was talking about. That's that's one of those seats of honor that you thought you'd shed to Shara, but it's actually deep down embedded in your soul. You see, you like to use your position, your title in ways that make other people think you're important. You like that more than you even want to admit. And the Spirit said, you are not to be like that. Ouch. guess I've still got some work to do. You see, friends, wherever there are gifts and wherever there are strengths and wherever there's position and power and influence, every single one of us has the choice to make. Will we yield to our flesh? Will we follow the path of pursuing worldly greatness or will we yield to the Spirit and put our lives on the path of pursuing greatness in God's eyes? And there will always be this temptation for those things and those areas to be used by you to promote self, to lift up self in sneaky, sly little ways that you may not even see or may not even one notice. You will be tempted to promote self. And so let me ask you this. Where do you have some greatness? 
Because I'll say it again, every single person in this room has, has some greatness. You were created by a great God. He put his greatness in you. There's some greatness in you. Every single person in this room has some power and influence and position and authority and some gifts and talents and ability. And the question is this, do you use those things to promote self or others? To give yourself value and significance or to pour out value and significance into the lives of the people around you? Which way do you use the greatness that you've been given? And and let me just make this painfully practical this morning. Um, Here's the challenge. Here's challenge one. Think of one person maybe. One person that you might leverage your greatness in their lives to build them up. To show them that they matter. To offer them significance. Maybe it's someone in your workplace. Maybe it's someone in your neighborhood. Maybe it's a kid at school who feels insignificant because the world says, in every single way, from the world's perspective, you are not great. In fact, you're the opposite of great. You're worthless. You're insignificant. How might you use who you are and what you've been given to invest in and build up in the life of another? One person, one chance this week a person that you wouldn't naturally or easily do it for. Is God bringing anyone to mind? Might he if you asked him? And we notice that Jesus says here in verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. He's talking to the disciples here. He says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. You see, perhaps one of the main indicators is of if you are living for kingdom greatness or worldly greatness is this. Do you only walk with Jesus when it's advantageous for you? Are you faithful? Do you stand with him even when it costs you or when it's only when it's convenient for you? Do you serve when it's easy, when it's simple, when it works, or do you serve even when there's a price? Do you serve when you're going to be there anyway, when it seems pretty easy, or when it will take an entire week of vacation? Not a guilt trip, just... Not a guilt trip at all. We don't want people serving out of guilt. We want people serving out of desire. And yet there's this reality that flesh will say, I want to serve when it works for me. See, sometimes we serve when serving actually serves self. You ever find yourself doing this? You ever find yourself trying to serve, trying to get beyond self, and in the process of trying to get beyond self as you serve, you find yourself saying, man, I'm pretty important. I'm pretty significant. Look how I serve. Am I the only person that happens to? Probably um, not. Probably not. You see, we all like to serve when serving serves self when it's easy. But friends, that's not Jesus-like serving. That's not kingdom serving. And as we'll see, that is not where God does his best kingdom greatness development. Kingdom development happens when there's a price, when there's a cost, when it's hard. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, this is Jesus. Simon, Simon. We talked last week about how in Greek, when words are, are repeated, that's, that's the Bible's way of giving emphasis, emphasis um, giving feeling. And what Luke is telling us here is that Jesus is now addressing Simon, Peter, with passion, with urgency. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. 
You see, now Jesus will start to talk about how kingdom greatness is developed, how it gets formed in the life of one who follows Christ, how it gets formed in you and in me. You see, in the first century, uh, the final step for separating wheat from chaff required you to sift it or to violently shake it so the last little bits of chaff would be removed and the wheat would at last be pure. And so Jesus is saying this to Peter. Satan wants to violently shake your lives up. He wants to bring chaos and struggle and turmoil and challenge because he is convinced it will ruin you, Peter. It will crush you. It will annihilate your faith. But I'm telling you, I will use it to refine you. Satan wants to use it to ruin you. I'll use it to refine you. And notice what Jesus prays here, friends. Notice how he prays because it is so significant. He doesn't say... Satan wants to sift you, Peter, like wheat, but I'm going to stop him. He doesn't say, I'm going to pray for you to be spared, Peter, from this struggle or difficulty or tragedy or, tra- or, or temptation. He doesn't pray for protection. He doesn't pray there will be no, no pain or for it to be easy. He doesn't pray for safety or a hedge or travel mercies. He prays for faith. He says, I'm praying that you'll have faith. That you'll have continued trust in me, even in the midst of this coming struggle. See, he doesn't pray that Peter will somehow sidestep this struggle. He prays that Peter will hold on to God in the midst of the struggle. You know what God's will for for your life is? For you to struggle. For you to have difficulties and challenges. Why? Because in the midst of that, kingdom greatness can be formed in your soul. You want kingdom greatness to develop in you? Hold on to Jesus and cling to Jesus and rely on Jesus in the midst of whatever struggle God puts before you. But Peter replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Peter has a pretty high impression of himself. (laughs) And now we see a glimpse of what's actually holding Peter back and I think it's what often holds us back. You see, behind the failures of so many people and perhaps even most noticeably Christian leaders, is what we see right here in Peter. Blindness to our own weakness. Overconfidence in self. Self-reliance. A deep-seated belief that we are better, stronger, more stable than we really are. A lack of, of willingness to acknowledge our weakness. Where are you weak Where are you susceptible? Where does Satan see a soft spot in your character and start honing in? You see, friends, this is where the value of deep relationships is so central. Our mission here as a church, what we're all about, where we start and where we end, is becoming like Jesus and making Him known. Cedar Mill Bible Church, becoming like Jesus and making Him known. And I'm here to tell you today, friends... You cannot become like Jesus on your own. No one in the history of the world, not a single example in all of the scriptures of anyone becoming like Jesus outside the context of community. If you want to become like Jesus, you're going to need people in your life and not just on a surface level. You're going to need people that you can show all your cards to. You're going to need people that you can be transparent and vulnerable with. You're going to need people that you can ask questions to. Questions like, what am I not seeing about me? Where are my blind spots? What do I need to hear that I don't want to hear? What do I need to hear that I don't want to hear? 
You see, the church should be the place that's safe to ask those questions. I was just talking to Larry and Judy. They run our Celebrate Recovery ministry here. If you go to Celebrate Recovery, they start every meeting with these statements. Here's what we are and here's what we aren't. Here's what we are and here's what we aren't. And this is a great list. And I'm going to print it out and read it to us sometimes because it should just be what we are and what we aren't as a church as well. Um, They happen to be a little better at it than us. But one of their statements is, we are not a place for masks. We're not a place for pretending. We're not a place for putting on airs and trying to convince people that you're someone that you're not, that you're better than you're not, that you have no problems. In fact, they start, like every person introduces themselves and they say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and here's my biggest issue. Let's just lead with that. Let's just get it out there. When was the last time you asked someone, what do I need to hear that I don't want to hear? Do you even have anyone to ask that question to? Do you have anyone that if you did ask that question to, would feel safe enough with you to be honest? Tell you the truth. You see, in this passage, Satan spots some overconfidence, some denied weakness, and he moves in with sniper-like precision. But God moves into, and God loves and longs to use our trials to strengthen us for his purposes. Jesus answered. Jesus says now to Peter, I tell you, Peter. Notice how he calls him Peter here. Here's something you'll notice if you read the Gospels. Jesus never calls Peter, Peter. Peter's his second name. His name is Simon. Jesus renames him Peter. Simon's like weak and shriveling. Peter's like strong, like the rock. And so Jesus renames him Peter, but then just keeps calling him Simon. He rarely calls him Peter. He calls him Peter here. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter. And it's as if he's saying, Peter, you think you're strong, but you're not. You think you're already this person, this rock, this Peter. But in this moment, what you're going to see is this. You're still just Simon. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. You think you're with me? You think you'll go with me unto death? You won't even stand with me and say that you're my friend. Are you kidding? Talk about an overestimation of one's ability. You see, we've all got some chaff in us, friends. Every single person in this room. And what we'd like to believe is the same thing Peter and the disciples want to believe. And that's that it can come out. It can come off of us. Easily and painlessly and through these planned out, very controlled processes that we put ourselves through. If I just come to church, if I just read the Bible enough, if I just pray enough, if I just try a little harder, then I can develop this kingdom greatness that God wants me to have. I can just do it on my own. But what we see in Peter is that it actually cannot happen apart from difficulty and struggle and suffering. What you see in Peter is it will not happen until you're ready to stand face to face, toe to toe, with your own shortcomings and failures. Kingdom greatness is found actually in our weakness, in facing our weaknesses, in trusting God in the midst of our failures. In turning those things over to him and saying, God, I can't manage them anymore. I can't do it on my own. I can't become this great person through my own strength. You see, God loves to use failure as the primary tool, as the primary pathway towards greatness. We think God wants to use our strengths, 
our holiness, our righteousness. And God says, that's all great stuff. Good for you. Let's talk about your failures, Tashera. Let's talk about your places of embarrassment and deepest shame. The places where you have fear and regret and insecurity. And when you're ready to turn those up, when you're ready to dig those up and show them to me and offer them to the world, now I can start using you. You see, the message here is not be so strong and confident and faithful that God can use you. It's the opposite message of that. Where in the Bible does God enlist strong, confident, faithful, perfect leaders? Never. Praise God. It's one of the reasons I can be a pastor. You see, he says, be dialed in so fully to your need for God that he can work through you. And so the first step of kingdom greatness for Peter, for Simon to become Peter, is realizing that without the power of God, he'll always just be Simon. You see, Simon can't become Peter on his own. He can only become Peter through weakness, through the power of God, through power that he can't muster up. Then Jesus asked them, now he's talking to the whole clan, he's talking to the whole crew, all 12. Judas is even still there. When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they replied. And in this moment, what Jesus is talking about is this moment back in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus sends them out into the world and he says, go share about me, go tell about me, go preach the good news that the kingdom of heaven is here, that Jesus is here, that the Messiah has come. And they go out and he says, don't take anything with you. And they go out and they come back days later. And Jesus says, how'd it go? And what do they say? You guys remember? They say, it went awesome. This is great. I love following you, Jesus. People were nice to us and kind to us and they welcomed us and they fed us and they respected us and we felt important and significant and powerful. We did all these cool things in your name. I mean, if this is what following you is all about, sign me up. This is fun. Yeah. Did you lack anything? Nothing. We didn't like anything. Every, all our dreams. This is it. He said to them, but now things are going to change. If you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. This is sort of a strange interaction, isn't it? Seems like a little bit of a weird way to end this story. Let me tell you what's happening here. What Jesus says is, the first time you went out, it's not how it's going to be. <laughs> it's not what it looks like to, to walk in kingdom greatness. It's not what it looks like to advance the gospel and, and the message of Christ. That's not how it's going to go. See, from this point forward, people aren't going to receive you and respect you and exalt you and lift you up. They're going to resist you and persecute you and attack you. Maybe even kill you. You see, it's going to be hard. And what he shows the disciples is that they're excited to follow Jesus because what they're really after is worldly greatness in the name of kingdom greatness. We say we want kingdom greatness, but what we really want is just all the accolades and benefits that the world has to offer. We just want them in Jesus' name. Jesus, I want to follow you as long as it's going to be this great experience that we had before. I'm lying, I'm dying to follow you. Right? And so Jesus says, hey, this time people aren't providing anything. Sell your stuff. Bring everything you can along. Pack a donkey. 
And then there's the sword thing. You know, he says, like, buy a sword. And they say, we got two swords. Now, here's what's funny about this interchange. What they're really saying is this. All right, we need swords. We got two. Two swords, 12 guys. And their thinking is, like, let's go get, we, need, we just need 10 more. We got two, we just need 10 more. Because again, they've, they've, they've drifted back into thinking about worldly greatness. It's like, oh, people are going to resist us. Oh, they're not going to like us. Oh, but we're going to have swords and we're going to battle and we're going to fight and we're going to become great again by force. You see, they've just drifted right back into worldly greatness, pursuing greatness in the world's eyes. And that's why Jesus says, that's enough. Like, I, I'm so tired of these guys you gave me, Lord. Don't you, do you love the disciples? Don't the disciples make you feel better than about yourself? Well, you shouldn't because that's the opposite message of this sermon, to compare yourself to the disciples. I'm just kidding. No, um, I've been waiting to do that all the morning. Uh, yeah, I mean, you kind of look at them and you go, man, okay, well, they were failures too. I'm a failure, but they were failures. I mean, I don't get it all the time. They didn't get it. They were with Jesus for crying out loud, right? And we'll get swords. And Jesus is like, no, 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 all you need is two. See, what Jesus is saying is not like, like, you know, stack up on stuff so that you can take him by force. What he's saying is, like, gird up in your soul. Stock up in, in, in your heart and mind. Prepare yourself for the struggles and battles that are ahead. Get ready to pour yourself out, to give yourselves to others, even people who will resist you, even your enemies. And he tells us how we cannot be deterred from this goal, not be deterred from kingdom greatness. And the key is in those words, and he was numbered with the transgressors. You see, Jesus, what he does here is he quotes this very famous passage from the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. It's the passage of the suffering servant. It's the passage that says God himself is going to come to earth and die. The greatest of all. The Lord of heaven and earth, the greatest being you can possibly fathom is going to come to earth and instead of achieving greatness and power and influence and rule, he's going to utterly fail by hanging on a cross unto death. You see, how can you not be deterred from pursuing kingdom greatness? Remember the ultimate picture of kingdom greatness. Remember the source and the strength of kingdom greatness. And it's Jesus, the one who bore all of our transgressions and died on the cross. You see, here's the power of the cross. The power of the cross is this. What looks like the greatest failure in the history of the world, God actually uses for the most cosmic success. The greatest failure on the outside, from the world's perspective, an absolute catastrophe. And yet, what does God say? The ultimate victory. That's why, friends, you can bring your failures, your insecurities, your shortcomings to the table. Remember the setting of this conversation? They're still sitting at the table. They're still sitting there with with the the empty cup and, and the bread partially eaten. And Jesus is saying, when you forget what kingdom greatness looks like, you just come back to the table time and time again. And every time you come, don't come with your victories and your strength You come with your weaknesses and your insecurities and your failures and you lay them at the foot of the cross and you say, God, this is who I really am. And because you could do what you did on the cross, I think you could do something in me. So this morning I'm asking you to come to the table not with your gifts and talents and abilities, not 
from a place of confidence and strength, not with everything that you think you have to offer the kingdom, but come with your pain, your brokenness, your struggle, the places of insecurity in your life, and you lay them down and you say, God, how might you use this, this area, this thing for your glory in my life to not create worldly greatness in me, but kingdom greatness? Spend some time with the Lord and when you're ready, the tables will be open. Come, receive the bread and the cup. Take it on your own and we'll worship together. Let me pray. Father, this morning as we receive the elements, remind us of your power. Remind us how you've, you use the weak things of the world to, to shame the strong things. How you use broken people and broken stuff and broken lives and messed up realities and you flip them around to do your work. Speak that into the lives of some people today who need to hear that. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your son. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.